So hello everybody and welcome to Folk on Falcons. I'm Philip Mundy and joining me is... Ian Chaser. We start this week with the very sad news that the Falcons legend is putting it lightly. Doddy Weir has unfortunately passed away after his long and well-publicised illness, MND. I wouldn't say it was a surprise, but still when you saw that moment, it made everyone's hearts sink collectively. And it made us just think back to some of the wonderful memories that he shared with the Newcastle Falcons and us as fans. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't really think of Doddy about a smile on your face, even obviously after after his tragic death. Um, everything about him was just larger than life, and not just in terms of on the field, particularly for us, but of course for Scotland, I think for the game in general. But even obviously when he was diagnosed with MND, his work for the his charity and, and for sort of the awareness of the disease in general was was absolutely brilliant. And he kind of really brought awareness and attention to it uh, as a whole. And it's not just the game, but I think it's sort of the world has lost an absolutely fantastic figure in person. And it is, and it is really, really tragic. And I, personally, I think I would like to see the club honour him somehow, some way, whether it's a stand being renamed or even you know, something like a little statue or something or a plaque or something. I think something that would be a really nice touch. I think it would be really appreciated by everyone. Yes, it has to be remembered as um contribution to not both just the league winning team, but also captain of the cup final in 2001 down at Twickenham. Um, one of my very first memories of being a Falcons fan was the, the bus trip away. And if it wasn't for him, it would have probably been quite a miserable bus trip back. So um, I think we all say thank you for your service, Doddy, and rest in peace. So, if we move on to the rugby, um, we've got to get our record books out, I think, because when was the last time we won two league games consecutively? And I'm sure you've done the research. So, last time we actually won two games in a row was um, in September 2021, where we had consecutive wins against Bath and uh, then Wasps. But if you want to go for home wins, it's even it's the season before that, where we had two home wins in a row at the end of the previous season in May. Um, so it doesn't happen very often. So I think we need to sort of cherish the, these wins. And and I think we can sort of go a bit of confidence going into our next game away to London Irish. So hopefully we can kind of add on that and have three wins in a row, which uh, goodness knows when that was last time that happened. Yeah, certainly uncharted territory. Although um, we'll, we'll gloss over the Premiership Cup match because um, if we start trying to include that in our um, going through the record books, we might be scratching our heads for a little bit longer. But um, I have to say that it wasn't a surprise on the the day. We named a strong team, and we looked like we deserved it. Yeah, I mean, I've, it's always sort of gone on the radar a little bit. In that, I think when we get to opposition try lines, we actually look pretty good. And you sit there, and you're actually quite confident that we're able to convert chances, especially. Through, through malls and if it's got a bit in the in the tight forwards, you think that actually it's on here, um, which hasn't really happened a lot with us. Um, but I think we're starting to see that more and more over the past few weeks that we do actually look quite dangerous when we do get into oppositions. I wouldn't say necessarily into the 22, because I think sometimes when we are on the 22, it can go sort of sideways a bit. But when we're very close to their trial life, sort of in the five metres, we do actually look pretty dangerous. And that's why we're I think we're now starting to see more tries I mean, you still get sort of Carrera, so Radwan Wonder tries, and that that's obviously great. But I think Vastrona tries are all, all these are through the forwards, and we seem to be really, really good at that. And 
I'm, in Walder's interview, he talked about how the forwards coaches have kind of worked on that, especially from line outs. They kind of saw weaknesses in Exeter's defence in that regard. And obviously, it worked in the first half. I think we could have been ahead by even more, frankly. I mean, we're much the better side. Um, we did take our chances, I think, mostly when they were presented to us. But we could have had more, I think. Um, and that was obviously you know, impressive against Exeter, even if it was a, a bit of a depleted Exeter team. Yeah, um, we almost got a bonus point try as well, it has to be said, with um, Lockwood um, fumbling a couple of inches short. But um, once again, we went through the whole of the second half without scoring a try. And um, I think it shows that we came away with the win still, that we've actually got a very good defence because we only conceded the one against us, against Exeter, in that second half. And, of course, we, we got the kick for the post as well, which helped in the end. But... Um, Overall, very strong performance. And is it linked to the fact we didn't have Simbins this match, whereas in recent weeks we've had a number of players sent off? Or is it just that the team's performed, the Argentine um, combinations back and firing, although obviously Orlando from the bench? Um, what What's changed? Because three weeks ago we were sitting here thinking, can it really get any worse? And it couldn't. It's been pretty good since. I think it's maybe a combination of a few things you said there. I think the Argentinians have helped. I think we've got, we're starting to get a few more players back. Uh, for example, Ferns was there. Um, you know, we sort of get sort of these big hitters sort of come back into the team. Um, I think we have become more clinical, like I say, when we do get closer to the try line. And our discipline seems a bit better. So I thought our discipline was pretty good yesterday. I can't remember us giving away too many sort of terrible penalties. And uh, the only thing that sort of let us down was sort of, you know, line outs going away and some sort of odd decision making, really, that sort of let Exeter sort of back into the game and give them a few sort of heart, you know, heart and mouth chances. But um, I thought generally our discipline was pretty good, and considering who the referee was, um, that sort of is, a, is an extra bonus. Um, so I think it's probably a combination of those, which generally in, in games, you know, if you do have your best players on the pitch, if you're, you know, scoring tries and the opportunities present themselves and your defence is good and you, you're well-disciplined, you are going to win games. And I think that's basically very simply what we're seeing. I have to admit, during the week when I saw that Carl Dixon, I wouldn't call him our nemesis quite, but um, he's certainly not... Um, Sean too favourably honest in the past was going to be the referee. I I did think, oh dear, this isn't going to be a fun way to spend the evening. And um, I will admit, I watched it from home and had the England football match on, and it, it very much changed to Falcons on the big screen, the football on the little one because that match was actually rubbish. But was that reflected in the ground at all? The fact that there was obviously a World Cup game going on at the same time, what, or was it just the, the rugby purists were there and it was a slightly different atmosphere? Uh, I mean, possibly it could be the case of camp the season ticket holders, really. The attendance was about 3,200, which it, it looked like that. But obviously, really small for home game against Exeter when we on the back of a, a good win way down at Gloucester, but hardly surprising, really, considering what it clashed with. And, you know, there were plenty of fans in the concourse waiting to the very last second to kind of go out uh, you know, just, uh, where, you know when it was kickoff or when it was half time, and uh, you know people were sort of watching on their, you know, sort of watching the football on their phones and sort of looking up and down, like sort of bobbing, you know, bobbing dog or whatever. So um, it definitely had an effect. Like I say, I thought it, it probably wasn't clever to have the match on that day because you know it's a ridiculous clash to have, and it was always going to affect the the crowd figure. Um, but I thought that was very much evident. I thought there was still, there was still a good noise and it was an entertaining game, which did liven up the crowd. Of course, it is great to see, but in terms of, of the crowd numbers, it was a small crowd. It definitely did have an effect. Yeah, and um, I guess it's a slight shame that although the players have hopefully got the wind in the sails, a lot of fans perhaps haven't because 
Um, a few people obviously didn't turn up on Friday, and then the next two games have got London Irish on Saturday coming up, and then following that, I'm going over to Ireland to watch us in Galway against Connaught. So um, on the road, and then I believe it, after that we've got Cardiff in the cup at home, and the next league match is on the 23rd against Sale. So um, there will be a lot of fans where there's quite a big gap between uh, matches they're watching. Yeah, which sort of begs the question as well as to why they have the match clashing with the football. But I mean, that's just kind of how the fixtures have fallen, of course, with the with the various things that have happened in the league where we do have that gap between home games now. But I think, I mean, especially, you know, let's face it, if they are in good form going into that sale game, I'm pretty confident they'll probably get a decent-sized crowd for that. You know, it's the it's the festive fixture, isn't it? And it was going to be a big crowd last year. And if they are performing well, no reason why it shouldn't be a big crowd this year. So I think that, that would be a good one for the club and everyone involved, really, to see, you know, hopefully a bumper crowd there. If we just talk about a couple of other fixtures, obviously we've got London Irish coming up, which we don't seem to have a terribly good record against. We like to get battered by them in recent fixtures. Um, but then also uh, a match just gone was the match against Northampton in the Premiership Rugby Cup, which um, we got to see a few new faces and um, had a good fist at it, but we didn't come away with anything, unfortunately, in the end. And I think our Cup tournament's now over. Yeah, I mean, with that, it was very much do or die for that Northampton game. You know, we had to win to restand any chance of getting through to the semi-finals and of course didn't so uh that was it really um you know that's 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 his backup competition done for another year but it was all quite confusing because we weren't really sure what was happening in terms of who was going to be able to qualify and in terms of what happens with the wasps and worcester results and how that affects teams that have played them for example us and how does that affect teams that haven't played them and, and all sorts so it was a bit of a mess in terms of what exactly was going on but at the end of the day, we had to win to, to get through. We didn't, so it was all academic, really, in the end. Well, you, you say we had to win to get through. They've actually still not released, as of 27th of November, um, what the actual qualification criteria are for that tournament. And it does bring into question kind of what on earth these people are doing when they've got a professional rugby tournament where they've had plenty of time to think about how to restructure it following the demise of two clubs, which didn't really come as a massive surprise. Like they, they could have called it a contingency plan a couple of months before they went pop finally. And you had teams playing the final group game, not knowing what they needed to do to qualify, which is absolutely unbelievable. And there have been rumours circulating about whether they're going to um, count the fixtures that have been played against these teams, whether they're going to eliminate them from the record books, whether there's then going to have to be other fixtures played, or whether they're going to completely reform it. And still nothing's been published. And it makes you wonder what on earth is going on in the upper echelons of the various organisations. It just seems like a complete shambles. I wonder if it's sort of an indication of the fact that the competition isn't really taken seriously that much, particularly, that it's kind of, you know, we all know it's sort of viewed as a, you know, way to kind of play the, the reserve players and that's how all the clubs really view it as. Um, and I think because it's not particularly high profile, there doesn't seem to be much sort of a, a rush to kind of get these things resolved. I mean, for example, if it was on the European competitions or whatever, then it'd be resolved fairly quickly, I'm sure. But for this one, it just doesn't seem to be, yeah, they just don't seem to be sort of taking much interest in getting this sorted. And like you say, I mean, it's absurd to be at this stage and still have no idea what the qualification criteria is. Um, and I think, like I say, it's an indication of really the lowly status of what the competition has become, really, unfortunately. Although you say if it's a European competition, I'm not sure that, what the actual process is in Europe for the, the um, group games that have been presumably abandoned. Is it just a walkover or or what? Because am I not right in thinking that the qualification from the group stage is somewhat dependent upon 
position relative to other teams in the competition. Yeah, I think so, because they have like the league table, don't they, nowadays for that. Um, I'm not 100% sure on this, but I, I think that the results just get scrubbed. Or, or sorry, so, or, sorry they're, they're walkovers, sorry, not scrubbed. They, they get walkovers. Similar to, I think, the COVID walkovers. I think it's that sort of, they've sort of gone back to that, I think. With it. But um, you're right, I think we haven't done any official sort of confirmation with that, but that that's personally what I expect to happen is they'll just be awarded the, the walkovers and then sort of take it from there, really. What a complete mess, anyway. Um, not going to get too bogged down in that. Um, there was a bit of unexpected transfer news that came out um, in the last couple of weeks. Um, I'm not sure quite where it came from, but um, you picked it up on Instagram, I think. Yes, it was the news of George Merrick has departed from the Falcons and has gone to an officially unnamed club in the French uh, second division. I guess it's not a huge surprise. Really, I mean, he may well have had an offer and he doesn't get a lot of game time with us. And, you know, I suppose he can't blame players who want to go away and play more. Um, so I think all we can do is sort of wish him wish him all the best, really. In fact, thanks for his time with us. The, the club is called Carcassonne, I believe that's how it's pronounced. And um, it came out of nowhere and he has been playing for us this season. And for those of you not au fait with your French geography, oh, that's a good little bit of French to throw in there, au fait. Um, I think that's French. Um, it's kind of halfway between uh, Andorra and Montpellier. So I guess what's his prospects of um, training in the snow at Kingston Park over the next few months or going off to the Riviera? Um, bit of a no-brainer, really. But um, he has been playing this season, so it's a bit of a strange one. I'm not sure if suddenly they're doing a huge push for promotion or whether someone's ploughed a load of money, and I, I don't know too much about it, but um, it is one that caught a lot of us completely by surprise. At present, Carcassonne are oh, one victory above relegation, and maybe it's that the the, uh, the, the hit panic stations and thought, right, let's get some big boys in to make sure we don't get relegated this year. Or it might just be that Merrick's been told he's going to be playing first-team rugby every week. Um, it is quite a close division, so it might be that Few results go their way. They might end up. You might end up playing Pro One next year. We don't know, but um, leaves a bit of a, a gaping hole in the assistant commentary booth at Kingston Park because um, I think Merrick's um, not become a regular, but he's certainly um, not infrequently appearing as the co-commentator on the Premiership rugby streams, uh, as well as um, occasionally BT Sport. Up next week, talking of transfers, um, we'll get reunited with another second row that departed, Josh Basham. He's been featuring quite a lot, and I think at the minute he's fit. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how he comes up against his old teammates. Yeah, um, as I sort of said before, um, it's, I think it's one we can kind of be looking forward to. Um, so if you look at the league table, we're above them, five points clear of them, and we're, we're in reasonable form, and, and they aren't. I, mean, I know they had a narrow half-fought defeat against Leicester today. But despite that, you know, I think we can go there full of confidence, really. Um, I don't think we... I think, you know, on their day, London actually have a very good team. They are, do have very, very good players. But at the moment, it's kind of not working for them. So I think we can go there sort of without fear. And I, like you say, we haven't had a wonderful record there. But, you know, it's got to change at some point. And I think this is a good opportunity for, for that to change. Yeah, um, if anybody cares, um, the pair of us will be making the journey to the Brentford Community Stadium. And you'll see us, I think we're both going to be wearing our Doddy Weir um, paraphernalia from the uh, the big one at St James's Park a couple of years ago. So if you see us, give us a shout. Um, like It's always nice to see faces on these away days. Hopefully we make it three out of three in the league. Um, if we look a bit further afield at other rugby, it's been an interesting couple of weeks internationally for various home nations. 
Wales losing to Georgia, I think, is the the real surprise. Um, although Wales haven't been great lately, I, I assumed everyone, or I assume everyone, just foresaw a, a Wales kind of getting by against Georgia with a not terribly pretty victory, not the one point defeat which they ended up on the wrong end of. Yeah, well, I mean, Wales, it's things have sort of, well, the wheels have sort of come off really, haven't they, the past year or so with them. Um, I mean, the, that one in particular, that had sort of banana skin written all over it, really. Um, and especially, you know, if you're Georgia, I think that they probably saw that as a real opportunity because you know, we know for years they've been knocking on the door to get the chance to play more tier one nations. Um, on a regular basis, and they must have seen this as a real opportunity to sort of to to have made a statement. They absolutely did that, and you know they they deserved it as well. I mean, as Wales have been quite often in the past few months, whether it's for a full game or for large parts of a game, they just haven't been very good at all. And Georgia took full advantage, and they you know the prize was there, and they, and they took it. The the England games against New Zealand and South Africa of the last fortnight, um, well. The England game was going the way we all expected, and then there was a bit of a, a Lazarus-like recovery um, to end up drawing it. But And suddenly everyone seemed to think that Eddie Jones was a genius again. But I, I kind of wasn't quite sold on that, given that, um, well, firstly, I wasn't too happy I was kicking the ball out at him. If we put that to one side, everybody seems to have forgotten that at that point in the game, um, New Zealand were down 14 men. And yeah, we scored three tries in 10 minutes against New Zealand, but they were down to 14 men. And when we were against 15 men, we looked pretty abject. Well, I mean, it's what England have done over the past few months as well. That I think they've shown flashes, often sort of down to you know the old individual brilliance when these individuals are kind of allowed to play, whether they they're given instruction to be allowed to play or just kind of otherwise the opportunity presents themselves. So they, we know that on paper the England team is very very good, and they, there are some very talented individuals there who can win games single handedly. So when they can click and when they can get these moments, and that they can cause any team the world problems. But because of sort of Jones's turgid style and his sort of autocratic methods, we just never really see that. Um, we saw it a bit in New Zealand to salvage a sort of heroic draw, but once again, you know, came and stuck at the weekend against South Africa. Yeah, um, that's South Africa. It just reminded me so much of the World Cup final four years ago, watching it. And as soon as you saw the team sheet named, you kind of knew the way the game was going to go. Um, we had we had absolutely nothing creativity-wise. And the odd times we did get into a bit of space, Noel or May just got caught up because they're no longer speedy wingers. They're just cut inside and ended up getting tackled by someone. I really don't know what the game plan was. Well, it's like we said, for ages now with England, we don't know what the game plan is. It's poor discipline. The you know Individuals aren't allowed to... to to express themselves, like you say, no creativity. It's always so turgid, so predictable, so slow. And I think what you start to see now is you start to see some pretty procedural criticism from all sectors now, because you've always had in the press and you know some of the pundits have always, you know, well, some of some of the press and some of the pundits rather have stood up for Eddie Jones in one way or another. But I think you're really starting to see that everyone turn now. Uh, you see, oh, the RFU are going to do a review into the year and the autumn series and whatnot. But, uh, you know, what review is needed? We all know what the problem is. And that problem isn't going to disappear until the World Cup's already been wasted. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think oh, for England fans, there's certainly nothing really to look forward to until after the World Cup where they can get someone new in and try to somehow rebuild. But, I mean, but then it's four years to live a World Cup. Yeah, when I saw the the, the phrasing of RFU going to launch review, well, you, you think kind of, oh, they might be getting the message now, but then when you actually think about it for another maybe five seconds, you realise, what does that mean? It means that 
a review means a, a process that will be protracted and then in however long once they've performed their review, the other side of Christmas, they'll provide their little report to somebody saying, oh, well, the floor is subsided now. Let's just keep quietly keep Eddie Jones on and hope nobody notices. And then the Six Nations will happen and it'll be too late to do anything about it. But I said it was reminding me of the World Cup um, four years ago or three years ago. If you look at the team, it was actually unnervingly similar to the World Cup team. Of the pack, six players were in common from the side that lost the World Cup three years ago. It would have been seven of them, but for Courtney Laws' concussion. We also had the same players at 11, 12 and 13 in the back line. So out of our, our starting 15 on Saturday, um, nine of them were the same as the World Cup, and it would have been 10, but for Courtney Laws. I did a little bit further reading, and of the South Africans, less than half of them were the same as the World Cup three years ago. And, yeah, they had um, uh, another um, three on the bench who started in the World Cup. But if you look at our bench, we also had Nolan Youngs to bring off, who started the World Cup. And then um, Slade and Cowan Dickey were on the bench both times. And you do think, well, has that have any of those players in that squad really got better over the last four years or three and a bit years? And you could perhaps argue that Itoji's matured a bit. But aside from that, I think the players were probably at their prime three years ago, not now. I can't think of a single one of the players other than Atoji that you could argue is better now than they were three years ago. Whereas South Africa have changed their squad a lot more for putting better players in it. And they've moved. And I think it just highlights the stubbornness of the man at the helm. Well, yeah, it's exactly that. It's not just the tactics from it. It is the personnel. You know, he has his, he has his favourites and he picks them whether they're on form or not. Um, and, you know, we've said that these sort of internationals, whether it's the autumn international, whether it's, you know, they have these tours to Australia in the summer, whatever it is, you know, these opportunities to, to bring new players in, to get them embedded in the England squad, to get embedded in sort of playing regularly or starting regularly for England in, in you know, with an eye on a six nations or the world cup. And we just haven't, it's just been a wasted three years because we're just using the same players who were now past their best, well past their prime and peaked at the world in that world cup semi-final. And, you know, a lot of those players, some of them just shouldn't be involved in the squad at all. Some, I think you do have them on the squad because on their day, they can be, I think some of the players can play better if they are playing under a better coach, but you've got to bring, your new player, you know, you have to evolve, don't you? You know, and you know, the game moves on, other teams move on, other teams improve. You know, it's always in flux. If you stand still, you got no chance. And that's exactly what England have done for the last three years. Yeah, um, I, I wouldn't say it'd be the worst thing to do to have a largely similar team. If we won three years ago and won convincingly, and we were playing a side where we knew that they'd play a similar way, that we could beat them again. Whereas when we lost against South Africa, it wasn't close. They comprehensively outplayed us and we tried to bully them off the park and unsurprisingly it doesn't work because they've eaten a bit more biltong than we have. And then what was he expecting at the weekend, starting with nine of the same players? He wasn't suddenly expecting South Africa to play differently. It's just brainless and I don't know what he was trying to achieve. It just seems sort of hypocrisy as well because I I, I definitely remember after the World Cup final, um, Eddie Jones in it, 
I think post-match interview, whether it was immediately after or, or not long after, was talking about oh how this team's kind of finished now. You know, this this was the team for this World Cup, and that's it. it we need you know it needs to be broken up. We need to start again for a new team, and you know that's sort of reasonable enough. But that just hasn't happened. It's the opposite. It's just you know as we've said, they just kept exactly the same players, and um, that I think is at least fifty percent of the problem because he's picking players who aren't performing and picking players who are past their prime. Very much so. So, if we move on to the roundup of the week's rugby, obviously on Friday night we had our great victory over Exeter, 24 points to 21. Also on Friday, Harlequins beat Gloucester, 21 points to 12. On Saturday, um, Sale beat Bristol, 25 points to nil. Um, only match then because of obviously the Wasps and Worcester cancellations against Saracens and Northampton, respectively. And then today, a cracker, Leicester beating London Irish, 33 points to 31. Um, in the in the internationals, um, Wales lost to Australia, 34 points to 39. And obviously, England lost to South Africa, 13 points to 27. Um, if we take a quick look at the Premiership table, it goes as follows. Saracen's still out in first with a 100% record with 43 points. Next to Sale with 32. Then we've got Harlequin to 26, Northampton with 24, Leicester with 22. On 21, we've got Exeter and Gloucester. Bath and ourselves have 17. Bristol have 14, and London Irish at the bottom in 12th. Right, so as we go around the region, at the weekend there was a narrow defeat for Donington Mountain Park away at Sale FC, the amateur club, 34 points to 31. In National League 2 North, there was a victory for Tyndale over Harrogate, 15 points to 8, whereas Bladen were beaten by Chester, 31 points to 19. Regional 1 northeast. um, Annick came out victors over Heath, 27 points to 22, and Billingham beat Scunthorpe, 67 nil. Uh, that's a league to keep your eye on, actually, because um, both Billingham and Annick are going great guns there. Um, one and two in the league, um, Billingham on now on 50 points, Annick on 41, and that game against Heath was an all-important one with them um, overtaking them as a result of that fixture. In Regional 2 North, there was a draw between Carlisle and Keswick, Concert lost at home to Penrith. Durham City lost at home to Northern. Morpeth gets score of the week with an 111 points to nil victory over South Shields Westo. Um, Percy Parks, uh, 43 points to 15 win over Aspatria. And Stockton lost at home 7 points to 41 against Middlesbrough. Durham Northumberland won. There was a victory for West Hartlepool over Acklam. Pontelan beat Gidsborough. Hartlepool beat Novos. Hartlepool Rovers lost to Medicals and Whitley Bay Rockcliffe beat Horton and Peter Lee. In Durham and Northumberland Division 2, Ashington beat Whitby, Barnard Castle beat Walls End, Bishop Auckland got a home walkover against Sedgefield, Gateshead beat Seaham, North Shields lost to Wrighton and Wynn Leighton lost to Redker. And then finally in Durham and Northumberland Division 3, Darlton Madden Park Elizabethans beat Seg Hill, Gosforth lost to uh, Gosworth beat Seton Carew, home walkover for Houghton against Pruder Stocksfield, and Yarm beat Jerovians. Well, as we said at the start, um, RIP Doddy Weir, and we look forward to speaking to him more at Beat Spirits, or hopefully at Beat again because of a win next weekend. So that's all from me. Bye, everyone.